Hello and welcome to Compo Junto's special Origins episode for Evan Narciss. I'm saying his name right because I asked him before we hit record just so I made sure that I was respectful out here. Um, Evan Narciss, I'm going to let him tell you a little bit about his origin story and where he came from and how he came to the point where he's at right now. A little bit about how he's relevant to Compo Junto and geek cultures. He's currently writing Black Panth- um, um, Rise of the Black Panther, number one. He did just came out um, on the 10th, right, Evan? Uh, no, uh, number one came out on the 3rd, actually. On the 3rd? I'm yeah. bugging. I bought it on the 10th. That's, That's what it all was. right. As long as you can buy it whenever you want. As long as, you <laughs> as, long, as long as the transaction goes down and it counts. Yeah. So, Origins, if you're new to Comic Book Junto, if you're new to listening to Origins, if you're new to this whole shebang, my name is Octavius A. Newman. I am one of the co-hosts for our main show, but on these shows, I like to talk to people in geek culture and have a conversation about their origin story and how they got to be where they are. Like I like to say, go back to Crime Alley with them. Anybody can say, Google Evan Narciss and know what he does now. You, you know, you can go to it and find him on Twitter. You can find out some of the other stuff he's done, but I want to know what I'm interested in is like, how did we get here? How did he arrive at this point? Why you know, did he you arrive? You know, the crime here? alley thing is mad depressing, right? Yeah, Ev- talk to me, Evan. Why you don't like you don't like crime alley? Oh, I think it's one of the best Batman stories ever written. Uh-huh. Um, and I I love the character of um, oh my god, I'm totally forgetting her name now. That's embarrassing, Leslie Martha. No, um, introduced in the, in the very first, there's no hope in crime alley was a story written by Danny O'Neill drawn by Neil Adams. And, um, uh, it introduced the character that would later become Batman sur- surrogate mother, Leslie Tompkins. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was, an, she was a basically, uh, social worker style, um, character who is, was there at the scene of the crime right after to comfort Bruce. And right. she said, uh, my name is Leslie Tompkins. I'll do what I can. It was a great, whole great story. Um, um, uh, that revealed Batman going back there every year, uh, mm-hmm. to remember his parents. Yeah. And, uh, she would see him every year and they, they adapted that story for the animated series. Um, it was a great episode. Uh, but you know, primarily, Nothing good happens on Crime Alley. It's mad depressing. It's like, oh, yeah. Okay. Here's, here's the fucked up shit that made me Batman. Right. Well, that's not what I... See, I appreciate you giving me that feedback, because that's not what I'm trying to take us. You know what I mean? <laughs> Thank you. I'm more so... <laughs> so I mean, talk about the time you got bullied in second grade. Because... I'm more so talking about the origins, and I just use Crime Alley because it's just the... You know what? When the radio actor st- spider bit you? Right. That's right. better? Because then after that, you get a little sick, but then the powers come and also, all the rest of that. Uncle Ben dies. Anyway. Well, you know what? I'm going to work I'm on this. Yeah. I'm going to workshop it. I'm going to send you a DM or two. You can let, because you're the writer. You know what I mean? I'm just, I run my mouth. That's what I, that's what I do. I mean, the funny thing is what we're hitting on is that uh, most superhero origin stories have that element of tragedy in there. Yes. There, there are very few of them that don't involve somebody dying or some kind of horrible mistake being made. Mm-hmm. Um Gamma rays or... Right, exactly. Yeah. You know. So, um, maybe I have some mistakes that I made that brought me here, but I kind of don't think so. Word. Well, what I want to do, speaking of which, let's just dive right into it. So, where are you from? What, what, is, your, what is your background like? Take me back to the beginning. Um, like, so, uh, my parents are Haitian, and they immigrated here in the uh, early 70s. Mm. Uh, maybe even late 60s. I don't know exactly when they got here. 
Um, uh, I'm in my mid forties. Um, born in Brooklyn, New York, originally. Shout out to Brooklyn. Shout out um, to Brooklyn. You still in Brooklyn? No, no. I live in Austin, Texas now. Oh wow! Um, which is a, a huge change. This is my. Fr- I, I moved here um, two years ago. It's my first time living outside of New York City, mm. um, and it's and it's crazy. Uh, but so I come from a Haitian American background, um, mm-hmm. which means uh, a intense immigrant work ethic. Um, lots of shit talking. I'm just cussing like a storm here. Octavius. Hey, listen, man, you're a grown man. You go okay. and do your thing. Okay. Um, lots of shit talking and lots of pride. Um, yeah. Uh, lots of ethnic, racial, um, island pride. Now tell uh, me, not because I didn't. I am not Haitian, and I did not grow up with all that stuff. So I'm yeah. curious. You mind digging into that a little bit more? What's that mean? Lots of shit talking. Lots of you know. Lots of pride. Like, what's that mean for um, for somebody like me who doesn't know what that means? It, you know, I mean, shit talking is not necessarily culturally specific. I think it mm-hmm. happens. Uh. In a variety of different cultures, a variety of different black cultures. Yeah. Um, for me, it just meant, you know, like a certain amount of candor and honesty and realness ah. um, that, you know, there's a time and place for politests and, and, and manners and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But when you're really comfortable with somebody, you just let the chopper sing, you know? Yes, yes, um, yes, yes. I, uh, I, you know, I feel you because my close friends... You know, they see a side of you that maybe you might not show or maybe cover up a little bit, depending upon what friend you're talking to. They might be like, Octavius doesn't cover it up much. But still, I get, I, I know what you mean. Like that closeness, you really let that raw honesty yeah. come off. And my, mom, uh, my parents divorced when I was young, so I was re- mostly raised by my mom, um, mm. along with two siblings. And um, yeah, she just didn't have time for like nonsense a lot of the time. Um, um, especially from us kids. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and you know, now that I'm a parent myself, there's certain aspects of her approach, which I see I'm not going to replicate. Um, but for the most part, um, she did the best she could. She loved us the best she could. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I honor and respect her for that. Yeah. Um, she's not around anymore. Mm. Um, sorry to hear that. That's okay. And, uh, you know, um, I grew up in Brooklyn, then we moved to the suburbs um, of Long Island. And um, Oh, okay. What was that I, transition? Well, first, I got a question. Yeah. What prompted that that transition from Brooklyn to Long Island? Um, my mom was a single mother, and she was a nurse. And, you know, we, it was four of us living in an uh, apartment in Brooklyn. Mm. Um, and, How many rooms, may I ask? I <laughs> man, no, it's two, it was two bedrooms. Uh, maybe three. It was kind of an adjoining bedroom. I'm going off some really old memories here. Um, Good. We're going um, back. Yeah. And we lived in Borough Park, Brooklyn, a largely mm. Hasidic, uh, um, Orthodox Jewish community. Um, mm. and, uh, you know, was we that just odd kept... or was that just like norm? Just whatever. No, it was odd. Uh, we grew up in Flatbush, Brooklyn, which was uh, a large Caribbean enclave, um, we, we were there, I think, till we were about four or five. Then we moved to another apartment that was closer mm-hmm. to my mom's job. Um, she was a nurse. And um, eventually, the place, I think she, we were just outgrowing it. We were getting big. Um, yeah. And, and uh, she bought a, a house in Long Island and um, in Nassau County. And uh, things changed there. My sense of 
my environment changed a lot because in Brooklyn, it was very much a polyglot kind of experience. People from different cultures all around Mm -hmm. the world, um, uh, working class. And um, in Long Island, it was solid middle class, um, you know, working class families we grew up around. Um, Our neighborhood wasn't rich, um, but we were in much closer proximity to people who uh, were much better off financially than we are. And I wound up going to school with some of those people. And um, I'd say that that was the first place I got some rude awakenings about um, what people with privilege think of people who are marginalized. Hmm. So when you go here, um, you make that transition you have three siblings. Are you the youngest, oldest, I have middle? Two siblings. Two siblings. I have two a twin siblings. brother. Oh, there were four of you total. Okay, gotcha. no, no, no. There's only three of us total. Okay, um, a twin brother and a younger sister. Got you. Yeah. Um. So yeah, we know we all dealt with it in different ways. Um. I was uh, an introvert, a bookish nerd. Um. You know, classic nerd archetype, I guess. Mm. Um. My brother was far more outgoing. Um. So as our now, teenage years hit. Uh, I got a question for go, you. Go, go. The thing is, like back in the day, what, what now? What, what when I say back in the day, what? How, when is this? Like, what year is this? What time? Period so is this? I'm, I'm, I'm. I'll just say it. I'm 45. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have no problem telling my age. Uh, so we moved in. If I can remember correctly, we were starting uh, fifth grade. So I was around nine or ten. That would have put it around like 1980, 81. Okay, so 80, 81. You're nine or it may 10. It maybe actually been like. 82, 83, and I don't think about it. Got you. So yeah. when you say nerd, it's interesting because I've come to the conclusion that words mean things, but they don't mean the same things to everybody. Yeah. So nowadays, to be a nerd is cool. To yeah, like Star yeah, yeah. Wars is yeah. cool. Yeah. To like, I mean, you know, I don't like. A, I'm not talking pocket protector, but I, I guess I'm. I'm curious when Evan at 45 in 2018 says I was a bookish nerd. What's that? What is that? exactly mean to you like what's the picture in your head uh um you know i will go to the library on saturdays because ah i i didn't have anything else to do it was walking distance and it was a way for me to get on my mom's hair and i love to read other kids would you know go throw football around or mm-hmm. be part of an organized sport or doing something else i was not that guy um and you know, I mostly don't regret it, um, especially right. given my my career path. But um, yeah, that was me. And you know, I think the most succinct way I can sum it up is that uh, the stuff I'm uh, a kid my age, ten year old kid now who's reading comic books, um, go to libraries all the time, or you know, th- those kind of habits. Mm-hmm. Would not be, I think, made fun of the way I was as a kid, or right. it would not be as a uh, cause for concern from various parental units the way it cause was for, for concern. Oh, my mom was totally like uh, weirded out by the extent to the extent by which I did not want to like uh, play outside, or um, you know, was not outgoing, or was you know, emotionally sensitive. Like Mm -hmm. my mom was like, yeah, you need to toughen up or, you know, 
get your shit together. Like I got a lot of that from my mom, you know, like she didn't want, she certainly didn't want me to become a writer. Um, <laughs> if I can fast forward to like college, she was like, yeah, you're going to be, you're going to be broke all your life. Um, what did she want you to become? Oh, lawyer. You know, you know what? My mother to this day, every now and then will be like, Octavius, I still think you could be a really good lawyer. Yep. Yeah. It's, and it's for like, me, Mom, it was very much it, deep. It's gone. I'm not doing it. The, the, the immigrant second generation, uh, uh, dogma of pressure, you know, doctor, lawyer, architect, mm-hmm. a nice white collar, you know, profession, preferably with something that you could put some initials after your name. Um, right, right. Um, uh, that's what she wanted, uh, for me. And, you know, uh, to my credit, I went into college, um, trying to do that. I, uh, went into, I went to NYU pre-law and, um, I took my political science courses. I took, I finished my requisite political science courses, my sophomore year. I was about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and were you into that, it? Were you like, I, I like this or is this like, I, I was into, this is what I was into the kind do. of like sociocultural historical aspects of political science, figuring out how various uh, political and historical moments happened in world history. Um, man, Octavius, when I got the constitutional law, uh-uh. Um, maybe it was a professor I had. Maybe it was because mm-hmm. um, my love of language, my particular love of language, did not find um, a comfortable seating um, inside the language of court decisions hmm. and and um, and constitutional kind of sifting uh, through that language. It it I remember vividly the ideas of like the the experience of being able to understand the ideas at play when we study court cases, but reading the actual decisions was ridiculously hard for me. You know, I'm even too hmm. young and I have friends who went on to become lawyers. Um, uh, but it was just not for me. Um, what, what, when you say love of language and all of that, I'm, I'm, that makes me curious. Like, and in fine, and so when you say love of language, what do you mean, and how did that love not fit? Um, like, were you not able to do something? Were you bridled? What What was it? Um, I had a girlfriend in college. Uh, okay, all right, we getting somewhere. I mean, fits and starts. Uh, but I told her, um, uh, words are like my friends, and she thought hmm. that was adorable. Um, it didn't get me anywhere, but, um, it did. she wasn't, she wasn't feeling it. No, but that's another story. Um, Got you. but you know, like I, I, you know, I'm the kind of person I still am that a good turn of phrase word choice. Um, that stuff excites me. It, you know, it, 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 it I feel like it's picking the right color for, a painting of a sunset. Hmm. Um, um, Interesting. So I like I that. To, yeah. I that, to be that's, like, that's helpful for me to, that, that brought it, I guess you just did it. I mean, that just brought me there to go, okay, that's what he's saying. So I tend gotcha. to be very effusive in my writing. Um, and uh, effusive writing tends to get to me, which is to say, 
that the opposite, like economical, um, lean prose does the same thing too. So I like, you know, um, but, but that stuff was not in, in legal writing for me. And I know there are um, people. I, okay. I get you now. I, get I know you there now. are people who will say, Hey, if you read the Supreme court judge's opinions, then you'll see like he's having fun with it or being sharp. And, you know, like I, I, I get that. It just wasn't there for me in college at all. Um, mm-hmm. um, and the other thing about college, uh, that's significant, um, to my origin story is I had to take a requisite just to fill some credits. And I took a class called minorities in the media mm. by, uh, David Dent, who's a professor. Were you excited about this or were you going some like, Ugh, what is this? Um, I think I heard about it from some, from some older upperclassmen that were, that had taken it, um, and it was significant for a couple of uh, reasons. Um, David Denton, the professor, was one of a few, um, I think he was full-time at the time. He was one of a few full-time faculty um, at NYU, black faculty. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely in that department, in the journalism department. Um, there was Pamela Newkirk, who was an adjunct, um, who I would later take classes from. Um, but uh, Professor Dent... Um, was teaching that class and I took it and, um, you know, we were, there was, you know, the typical reading assignments, writing assignments, Mm -hmm. uh, class discussion. Mm -hmm. And, um, he was one of the first people who told me, Hey, you can write, you have a gift for this and and we should hone it. We should train it. Um, he didn't Mm. want this to be just a class that I took and, you know, let this, you know, little tiny spark that I had just, uh, kind of like uh, uh, fizzle and die. So, Did you agree, or were you were you kind of like I'm not sure? Um, I felt very encouraged. Um, it also helped that I grew personally close to him. Like I'd hang out at his like faculty apartment with his wife, and then when he had kids, mm-hmm. um, um, I'd be around, and uh, you know, he'd always speak to me very candidly about his his career, and you know political tensions in the sides of the apartment. And he was just real with me, you know, like, um, um, he was kind of like a father figure to me because I, uh, I grew up without a father, my, my dad, right. um, and my mom yeah. divorced and, 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 you know, uh, I didn't, I didn't get to know my dad until much later on in life. Um, so I, I also grew up without a father, so yeah, I can relate to the idea of people taking interest in you and being able to like affirm and say, you know, and just father figures kind of going, yeah. Hey, yeah, I see this in you. And it's funny. As I got, Oh, I didn't like, I grew up, grew up, not really. I don't know. I think my mom did a good job of making it. So my absence of a father wasn't a huge, big deal. Wasn't like your your dad was there was there was none of that. It was kind of like we're going here, we're doing this next. To, it's just kind of like this is just the move. Right. It wasn't until I got older that I started going, oh, there's there's pieces missing here. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, no, my mom was like, nah, your dad, your dad. She she made me feel a certain way about my father, um, mm-hmm. from as young as I can remember, and she'd always say, I'm not telling you. You know, not to love him, not to care about him. He's your father, but right. just knows me who's raising you. I'm like, okay. And then, you know, when those visits happened, it was, it was, I was stony and 
um, not very expressive. It was not a good deal um, mm. for, for either one of us. Uh, that has since changed, um, uh, thankfully. But yeah, when, when I was a kid, that was not the move. So when yeah. Professor Dent came into my life, um, it really meant something. Um, uh, uh, from a personal kind of empathetic standpoint, um, but also, um, here was a man who, um, was, um, an example of the kind of possibilities that, that lay within reach. Um, you know, I didn't know like, okay, you can write. So, um, you know, how do you get into a newsroom? How do you, you know, Mm -hmm. access the kind of, um, human, you know, relationships that get you to the places that you need to go. And he was one of the first people that was available for me, um, in that way. And I, I always be grateful for that. It's funny because yeah, I shared, um, I'm doing a signing in New York this week and I shared that on Facebook and we're friends on Facebook and he shared on his page and he says, you know, he was so proud of me. And I was, and I, I replied to him in that thread. I was like, look, you, I'm here because of you, you know, like I took your course. You told me I could write that. I'll never forget. I did a turn. Uh, our final project was a term paper. Um, basically on, um, any of the readings, us, ex- uh, uh, extrapolating any of the readings that we did in that class. And we read an essay by Ishmael Reed called the black Patholo- pathology biz, which mm-hmm. is how, which basically was a critique of how, um, um, entertainment and news media um, continue to buttress these tropes about black pathology, you know, dads not being around Mm. welfare moms, you know, that, that presented a very one dimensional portrait of humanity for black people. um, And talking about how like, this is a business um, um, because the actual, the, the, the presentation and the continuous presentation of that storyline is a business. Right. Hmm. Um, and, and I applied that same lens, that same filter to, um, the history as I knew it then of black superheroes and, and mainstream comic books with a long paper, way overwritten. I don't have it anymore. I was literally, I was just about to ask you, where can we read this? No, I'm pretty sure I don't have it anymore. And you got to understand, I went to the, I went to college pre-internet. So email was not a thing. I don't have no. like this saved anywhere. Nobody um, can dig that far back in your tweets and uh, that kind of stuff. no, exactly. No, Evan, let me tell you, let me just take a quick moment to just talk about technology for a second. I'm so glad that I'm just past people being able to like scroll back yeah. to, to see me tweet every one of my thoughts. Yeah. The thing about it is like, you know, being a teenager and being in your early twenties, um, it's changed, but the kind of, the idea of being in a liminal state in that part of your life, being in between things, figuring yourself out and yeah. the messiness of that all, that's been a constant probably since time immemorial, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, right. You, that's you're, you're going from young adult to adult. And that's confusing. It, that's hard. And it's messy. The difference now is people have tools that make it all too easy to put that messiness out there um, and assign value to how messy they are versus somebody else. And again, that's mm. something that humanity's probably always done, but like social media makes that a lot easier. You know, when I see people tweeting about their breakups and their so on and yeah. so forth, I'm like, 
Mm, I mean, this could just me be being an old head. I, I'll cop to that. But I'm like, that maybe you shouldn't put out there like that. Yeah. Um. But you know. It, yeah. I do. recognize that. I mean, I, I'm a I'm a new father as well. I'm a new father myself, and I'm already picking up on the stuff that I recognize. Oh, I'm not the target market anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you and I like when you kind of it's not like, man, this is stupid. This is dumb. But you kind of like squint your eyes at it and go, well, what? Why? How come? And it's like, oh, that's the same face that old heads make. Like, what are y'all doing? Like, yeah. what? Why would you? And it's like, OK, like yeah. it, it, it's not orbiting around me anymore. Like and you have to you, you have to fight that a little bit, you know, because you, you, you know, there's a whole younger generation of writers and thinkers and critics behind me. Who get a little hot, a little too quick, you know? And I'm like, oh, yes, I, yes. I want to do that, but I have to respect them and where and how things have changed. The world they operate uh, has changed. The stakes are in a way higher for them. Yeah. Um. Um. The path that I took to get here is not necessarily going to be available to them, and they have a right to be angry or upset or whatever kind of way. Um. Um. Uh, about that, you know, like that. That that's a real thing that I have to respect. Um. You know, my 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 kind of one guiding light in terms of uh principle for human behaviors is like just don't hurt anybody you know do you um mm-hmm. as long as it doesn't hurt anybody or as long as it doesn't like it's not malicious you know there's a bunch of corollaries to that like you know try to yeah improve other people's lot in life if you can or something yeah. you know stuff like that i'm generally an optimist but like basic stuff like that so you know do all yeah. that as long as you're not and if and, and if you gotta go after somebody like make sure it's a worthy target you know make sure you know yeah. uh your intel is good on that um it does seem like it does seem like there's a lot of i mean i i personally try to you know be quick to listen slow to speak slow to anger like slow yeah. down slow down yeah. slow down yeah. slow down relax like Take it in. Think about it for a second, you know, because I very much don't want to be the old head. That's like, y'all see my day. What the problem with y'all is like, wait, hold on. The way people are is a reflection of what they're growing up in and who raised them, you know, in a, in a lot of different ways. It's like what they have available to them. So I'm trying to understand a lot. Like, okay, why is this like, what's going on? And I see yeah. this happen a lot with hip hop. I, I mean, you made a couple references. So I'm assuming you listen to hip hop now. Yeah, I'm I'm not up on the new shit at all, but like yeah, I'm a I'm a mid nineties like golden era uh cat. Like yeah. Yeah. But I see a lot of people in hip hop, they really let the young cats have it. They yeah. just yeah, no gold. Like I'm up and to see Joe Budden let let off on people. I'm like, you just old. Like <laughs> like I don't I don't think you have like, you know, again, I'm not up on every little thing, but like Right, right. You can make debates about the artistic qualitative um, elements in a person's like output, and 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 you could also, you know, just be like, yeah, well, things are different now, um, right? And I don't like it because I like it when things the way things were before. It's like, well, yeah, you know, one of them is actually useful and one of them is not. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that, a lot of that stuff, I think. You're allowed to, I mean, you're allowed to not like things. Yeah. I think there, I would definitely encourage there being room for people to explore and grow. I mean, using hip hop is one of the easy things to do 
is going like, well, they so-and-so and yay so-and-so. And it's like, man, they're taking the baton and they're running with it and they're making stuff that represents them currently. You don't have to like it. Yeah, and you don't even have to engage with it. It might be in a direction. They might be taking that baton in a direction you don't like, but you don't have to follow them. You know, like, I look, I, I you know, I what was the last new hip-hop I listened to? When I news news is kind of a, a paradox this because, you know, the the last De La and Tribe albums were were like my shit. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh okay. Um, so you listened to the last Tribe joint? Oh yeah, I loved it. I thought it was yeah. amazing. Like it's like an emotional experience to me because like, I mean, last Five, you know, last time Five will be on a record. True. Um, but more than that, it's like they, they they evolve. Like you can hear the evolution. You know, they got they they're still stagnate. they're still Tribe though, but it's. It's not like oh, I'm listening to these old no. old dudes make no. old music. It's like yeah. this is not this fits now, but it's still them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so yes, this all spun out of me talking about college, um, and father yeah. figures and stuff. Um, so uh, I graduated NYU. One other thing that was um, important about my NYU experience was um, that time in the the early to mid '90s. Again, I'm. I'm probably falling prey to some romanticism a little bit about my younger days, but it's like, all good. it was incredibly fertile, you know? Um, <laughs> Wait, hold uh, up. What does that, that mean? Incredibly fertile how? Creatively fertile? Just the environment. The environment. And NYU was an epicenter for so many different things that you look out on now, and it's like, it's wild. Like, hmm. I was uh, classmates with people who went on to work at The Source, who went on to help found Double uh-huh. XL? Internet. If you don't know what that is, just Google it. You know. Yeah, yeah. So Google this, those things. This is you know first wave of what we used to call hip hop journalists. People documenting the culture, critiquing the music and attitudes and lifestyles. Um, or like a lot of that stuff was happening around NYU. Um, um, in the in like the actual physical. Yeah, area. yeah. Like I, I remember, Dream Hampton is somebody who um, is now a, a social activist, but she wrote for the Source and and for Vibe back in the day. And I would see her around NYU. Um, some of the founding editors of the Source um, uh, were at NYU. Um, I one of my uh, good friends from NYU worked at the Source and Double XL uh, for many years. Um, so yeah, it was a, uh, it was. Um, I got to see people putting their creativity, um, their critical skills, their love of the culture um, um, to work. Mm-hmm. And that was something I was like, oh, I could do this. Um, again, I was never the kind of hip hop head to be like all in it like that. But it was like, oh, maybe I can do this with comics, my love of comics. I, again, I didn't know what the avenues were then, and I wouldn't mm-hmm. find them for a very long time. Um, but it let me know that it was possible. Well, where did so, comics come into your life? Oh, comics came into my life single digits. You know, I, I, I definitely learned to read reading comics. I remember I, I tweeted about this a while ago. One of my first formative experiences with comics was being dropped off at a barbershop in Flatbush, Brooklyn. It was either by my mom or my dad. And, you know, black barbershop, long ass wait. So That's correct. It was it was kind of like free baby. Internet. If you if just take a moment real quick. If you if you're not black, and you date to been to a black barbershop, 
what Evan is talking about. Like he didn't need to say no more than that to me, and I totally understood what he was talking about. Yeah. Like, oh so, yeah. That's I, why. That's why mom or dad dropped you off because yeah. you knew what time it was. Yeah. It was it gonna, gonna be, be fast. Even be if you got an appointment, you're gonna wait. Right. Right. So I remember one of the first places I read a comic book was in that barbershop run by Haitian Haitian dudes, old Haitian dudes. So you know, I, I sincerely doubt that anybody there was going out and picking up the latest issue of Daredevil. But what I read was an issue of Daredevil uh, drawn by Frank Miller. He may not have been writing Ooh. it at the time. Um, it may have been Roger McKenzie, who was the writer that um, that was writing Daredevil when Miller first started drawing it. Um, the issue was Daredevil fighting Dr. Octopus. Mm. Um, and I'll never forget there's a scene, there's a scene where um, Daredevil turns off all the lights or the electricity in the room right and and doc ock um is kind of flailing about of course that with his radar sense and hyper senses he has the advantage and um he manages to get doc ock to thrust his two of his robotic arms um into like a transformer and and like and uh shock himself into unconsciousness that's how he beats doc ock Uh, and you know octavius i have not read this comic book in probably 40 some odd 30 40 quite vivid to you eh but yeah i got it um and and that was one of the first things i can remember i also remember um how old were you at this point man i I had to be like we left brooklyn when i was 10 so i was probably around seven or eight okay so you comic comics had already oh yeah like infiltrated yeah. you at this um, point my mom didn't want to buy them and wouldn't buy them but whenever <laughs> they were around i glommed onto them why would, I, would is there a particular reason oh so again this is me being an old head but you gotta understand like uh the cultural currency around comic books was was totally different then so mm-hmm. um them being a waste of time them being escapism um um having no redeeming value or merit uh, hmm. those were all prevailing attitudes at the time. You know, one of the things that, um, um, is like the birth defects of modern day nerd culture is the, the, the lingering effects of comics being, um, dismissed as just so much juvenilia, you know, like something you grow out yeah. of eventually. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think even some of the, big budget Hollywood blockbuster movies that uh, comes out um, centered around superheroes suffer from that. I feel like more about that. Oh, it's what I call nerd shame. You know, it's like, it's the reason that Superman's costume has to be made darker and the new DC uh, uh, superhero movies, you know, the Zack Snyder joints. Yeah. It's, it's the reason that uh, there has to be like a very self serious um, angsty tone to characters that traditionally um, have not carried it. Again, talking about the iteration of Superman in these first few movies, I think Justice League set up uh, the paradigm by which it can change um, by bringing <sighs> Superman Evan, back. Evan, that Justice League, it's rough, fam. Look, I mean... That joint is rough. It's, you know, I won't say I, I didn't enjoy it at all, um, I mean, there was stuff to enjoy. I, I am a huge Batman fan, and I am a Bat Fleck fan. However, comma, that movie was 
His heart just didn't seem in it, you know? Yeah. This is a shame because I used to be a, a ride or die dude for Daredevil, you know? I uh, And, and Daredevil, the movie Michael Clark Duncan? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, I gotta watch Affleck, that again. I thought Affleck was like serviceable. Colin Farrell stole the movie as Bullseye. I thought the way he interpreted his powers were um, terrible. Um, but the tonality of it, I was like, oh, okay. Like, this is kind of like reading, like, this is kind of like watching some Frank Miller shit um, uh-huh. um, uh, on the screen. I was like, okay, they're getting there. Um, part of, And I have to fast forward it in the, the whole timeline because I had a great deal of affection for Affleck because um, I used to work at Teen People Magazine, which was like People Magazine, but for teens, as we used to say. Uh-huh. Uh, and we used to have an event every year um, 20 teens who change who's gonna who will change the world and it was um you know young activists scientists um you know people who were in big and small ways um doing things that change their communities and possibly impact the world at large and we used to have celebrity performers and hosts for it and it was one year when affleck was in town to do snl and our editors did the ask and he said yes and octavius that dude worked the room he had everybody laughing and joking and like like he hit all the marks you needed to in that kind of an event i was like oh because you know i thought he was just gonna show up and you know kind of like cool and roll out yeah not not really care that much yeah but he like really seemed into it um and i was like all right you 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 get you get like a a plus one for charisma for me got you uh and benefit of the plus one for benefit of the doubt so a, a lot of my warm feeling towards Daredevil is 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 because of that, um, but you know, like comic books. Um, when I was a kid, mm-hmm. my mom and most parents were like, "Yeah, no." Um, at least some I remember some parents be like, "Well, at least he's reading." You know, he could be into mm-hmm. worse shit. Because <laughs> um, uh, you know, it's funny because like I I still in a funny way. Um, so a couple things. One part of why we started Comic Book Junto. Is because my buddy Adam and I, this stuff is really like deep to us. It's not just kind of like exactly what you're saying. We don't we don't suffer from the nerd shame. We we yeah. don't have that. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, we wanted people to take geek culture and comic books seriously. Like this is a legitimate form of literature. These stories mean something to us. We learn from these stories. We develop like our perspectives. To a certain extent, I mean, you know, you learn your perspective and worldview from your from your parents to your schooling to your mentors, but also from these stories that we read. Yeah. So we wanted to create a platform. We that's why we call ourselves the philosophers of geek culture, as a geek culture philosophers, because we want because when we have conversations, we have these deep discussions about how this affects our ourselves, our community our culture, the world around us, and how do we see the world in light of these stories that we're being told? And I tell my wife all the time, we have this joke. She she goes, you don't ever read. I said, I said, wife, I read way more than you. She's like, what do you read? I read comic books every week. She's like, I'm talking about really read. I was yeah. like, what are you talking, what do no, you mean? Yeah. Like, that's, that's reading. It's but she, fun. you know, it's a joke. But she, I think part of her in her mind is really like a, really a real eye roll. Like, come on, Octavius. You know, it's, it's funny because we, we, you talk about conflict shaping who you are and Octavius, I can sit here and tell you that the comic books of Denny O'Neill um, shaped my personality. The comic books of hmm. Anne Nocenti shaped my personality. Denny O'Neill 
was somebody who's a journalist who who went to writing and um, editing comics full time. But there's a deep, meaningful humanism at the heart of all his stories. Um, um, you know, and yes, uh, left leaning political sensibilities for him mm-hmm. and um, uh, and Nocenti. And Nocenti in the 1980s and early 90s uh, was writing Daredevil and she had a, a fiercely political run of stories in Daredevil where he was running like a legal, legal aid clinic um, and, uh, you know, villains were working for big corporations and he was fighting them. He was a little guy um, and it was profoundly um, political and moving stuff for me. Um, you know, the same thing with Wayne McDuffie, the, you know, the way he explored um, the black literary history um, in, in comics like death lock, this is before milestone. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, some of his other work was amazing to me. And I was like, Oh, okay. This stuff, um, that is so important and, um, electric in the real world, the quote unquote yeah. real world, yeah. um, can, can have a, have a home here, um, um, in comic books. And that's, uh, you know, that was primal for me that's like foundational experiences for me so i want to go back since i'm trying to do this semi chronologically i'm with it uh so college college ends Mm -hmm. um i kind of drift around i had a part-time job um um but it was just a part-time job and it wasn't any real passion i was a uh a clerk in the surgical intensive care unit of a hospital the same hospital how did we get there uh my mom was a nurse at Mamana uh-huh. Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York, the same neighborhood I grew up in, um, the same hospital I was born in. She worked there for thirty years. Oh, okay. She's like, you need to get a job. They have a, they have a job at this. They have an opening in this surgical intensive care unit. It was a clerk. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd I would help nurses and doctors with paperwork, um, let visitors in and out. Um, sometimes run to the blood bank to get a unit of the blood for a patient who needs transfusion. Yeah. Um, or drop off some blood work at the lab. Um, so it was like one of those things. And, uh, it was, it was a significant experience for me because, um, the thing about hospitals, I was just telling this to a friend over the weekend. The thing about hospitals is that like, um, the whole like palette of human emotion is there in its rawest form, you know? People who, have, people who haven't I seen I never thought about it like oh, that, but yeah. you saying it that way, I, I'm quite sure. You know, downstairs, you got babies being born. Upstairs, you got people dying. People yeah. who haven't seen each other for years, you know, reuniting at a hospital bed. People arguing, you know, you weren't there, you were there. Like, all of that was there. Mm. Um, doctors with massive egos, especially surgeons. Um, nurses hmm. who are overworked, empathetic. Um, or the opposite, burnt out and 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 short tempered, like it was all there. Um, so that's as fodder for like, oh, okay, this is what the human condition looks like in all its forms. Interesting. What's common? What's different? All that stuff. All that stuff was um there, um, um in in very bountiful uh, fashion. Mm. So so you're logging this. Like, I mean, subconsciously, it was also consciously, yeah. but like, yeah, uh, um. So I did that. Didn't really know how I was going to get into journalism. I had a friend who wound up at Life Magazine um, um, in the research department. And research in magazines basically means fact-checking. You're basically uh, going over the other people's work, mm-hmm. writer's work, and making sure it's factually correct. 
Um, she said there's a new magazine starting. This will be Teen People, which I mentioned. I know somebody who's going to be the research chief there. Um, blah, blah, blah. Um, so eventually, I started there as a freelancer. Um, and, you know, I got hired on full-time. And from there, you know, managed to express to a few editors that um, I think I could do something for the magazine. When the magazine launched, it was gender-neutral. Um hmm which means it didn't skew heavily female um, like 17 or the magazines like Tiger Beat or anything like that. Um, yeah. was, Whoa, Tiger Beat. Yeah, yeah. Whoa. Uh, Tiger Beat. Will Deep probably, cut. Google that one in there if you don't know what that is. Yeah, it'll, it'll outlive all of us. Anyway, um, <laughs> so gender neutral. I was like, okay, we're, we're doing this for boys and girls. Then, you know, uh, video games is youth culture. Comic books is youth culture. And I'm the guy to cover it. Um, and they gave me a shot. And, you know, from there... I got a foothold into um, meeting publicists, uh, getting pitch stories about uh, the launch of the PlayStation Two, um, and stuff like that, and and and, and comic books. I remember when uh, Jeff Johns was um, relaunching the the Teen Titans in the I think mm-hmm. early two thousands. Um, I DC pitched me on that because they they, they figured Teen People and Teen Titans was a, was a good fit. Um, so stuff Obviously. like that, and it wasn't like I got full page articles. It was like usually little blurbs. Uh-huh. And back in the early days of um, online media, uh, w- our website editors will let me go wild because they just needed to constantly feed content. Um, so right, I write right. stuff for them, um, and that's and and that's how I kind of started getting my name out there. Um, um, and as editors left and went other places. Um, I managed to pick up work from them. Um, one of my good friends, uh, Sandy Fernandez, was an editor at Team People who went to the Washington Post. And then she said, hey, I need somebody who can write about the stuff that you write about, comic books and video games. Uh-huh. And, and that was a gig that I had for like two and a half years, maybe longer. Um, and other people. Uh, so slowly but surely, I, um, I, I got out there as um, a cultural critic, you know, somebody who... Um, knew about yeah. these worlds and were about it and write about them. I also did other stuff too. Uh, mm-hmm. It was like a year and a half where I was the the book editor for Honey Magazine, which is a black women's magazine, um, which is now defunct. It was a part of uh, a media company run by Keith Klinkscales. I'm forgetting the name of the media company now, though. It's a shame. Um, I should look that up. I got a computer right here. Hold on. If there's only a magic box that you could type anything into and then it would give you the answer almost like a genie but technology um vanguard enterprises yeah okay vanguard media yeah um so yeah um and again that was at the, that early 2000s moment where like uh magazines that covered black people were a lot more abundant than they were like in the eighties. Um, hmm. there was honey, you know, Ebony was still around going strong. Essence was that Essence, Essence? Essence is still around, was still around. Mm-hmm. Um, there was code magazine, which was a black men's magazine. They had joined one to be the, the, the black GQ. There was a bunch of various tiers of hip hop magazines. There was, um, man, what was that West coast one? Um, I don't remember. I, I can pages. see the- it was rap pages. Okay. There was, um, ego trip. Um, which I loved, which is like an underground kind of like 
had a zine kind of quality, but like great access. Um, Elliot Wilson, who is a now, where is Elliot now? Uh, title. Yeah, he's a title. He, he was an Ego Trip like founding member. I know Elliot Wilson. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Ego Trip is something. I mean, it's it it's it's it it is pretty much a deep cut now. But people who wrote and contributed to Ego Trip were um, some of my idols. They they wrote two books. Um, Ego Trip's Big Book of Racism and Ego Trip's Big Book of Rap List, and they were great. Ego Trip's Big Book of Racism. Yeah, yeah. Huh? Look it up. Look it up. I will. Shout out to Elliot. Um, I know you'll never hear this, but he just had a birthday. Happy birthday! Or you could tell Elliot to listen to it. You know what I mean? Yeah. But or whatever. But these were, the, you know, this this was the kind of environment professionally that um, it feels like this weird moment in time. Um, where a bunch of forces aligned um, to provide platforms um, and jobs for for uh, a lot of young upcoming black um, uh, writing talent. Um, now I have a question. Yeah. If you, as you're writing at this time about comic books and video games, right? Yeah, that, it's Basically, funny because that that stuff happened elsewhere. But continue. Um, and, and a lot of geek culture stuff. Yeah. And you're talking about a lot of, you know, our culture, black culture, hip hop culture stuff. In a, in some ways, they cross paths, you know, yeah. in Wu-Tang and AKAs. But yeah. in actual comic book geek culture and in video game culture, there's not a lot of us. No, no. It's, not a lot of black no. people. Not a lot of. Yeah. So how was that? And things have gotten better. So I have one, one anecdote from my team people days there. Uh one of the best experiences I ever had was um, EA bought Method Man to town. I, I'm guessing this was EA a, Games. Yeah, EA Games. This was around the launch of the first Def Jam fighting oh, game. Oh, Def Jam uh, Vendetta. Yeah. So he was in a hotel room in Midtown Manhattan, like nine blocks from our our offices. I went over there and we started talking, and turns out Meth is a big old nerd. Like we saw a con, and you know this is before yeah, like Johnny a lot of Blaze. people are yeah. on the low. Yeah, on the low, a lot of hip hop heads were on the day and back in the day, and so he 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 started talking about like the comic books, and we had we, I was probably there for like an hour and a half, and we were just shooting shit about comics and video games. I will never forget he was on the PS2 when they finally got online with that um, that gigantic modem that you would screw on the back of the ps2 Mm -hmm. and he was playing socom which is their online uh military shooter at the time right and he was talking about how like people camp and you know certain guns were better than others and certain maps and whatnot i'm like meth is not just smoking a whole lot of weed or maybe he is (laughs) he's He's still still doing that he he definitely was but But he's multitasking yeah so that was one of the places where i realized that um those paths um, did intersect. Now, to, I'm going back and forth, but uh, you'll have to forgive me. But I remember it's you all know, good. I was in college when Milestone Media launched. It was 1993. I was in, uh, uh, and I'll never forget. I I wrote about um, the company um, and their output for a cultural journalism class. I I was taking. I was taught by the late Ellen Willis, who was a pioneering. Um, music critic, rock critic, um, uh, like very fiercely feminist. Um, she taught she taught a class um, in cultural journalism, and I took it and I wrote about Milestone, and she was fascinated by it. Um, 
later that year, I think I wound up interviewing for an internship at Milestone. I didn't get it, but um, it was my one of my first experiences um, that I would have with Dwayne McDuffie, who's like, an, uh, no pun intended, but an icon for me, like one of my mm. patron, you know, personages. Um, and, you know, the energy at Milestone was amazing, you know? So and that was a place where I realized, oh, wait, like they're, they're linking up with hip hop dudes too. Um, and the, the, the energy in their comics was not, you know, it was very much, they were creating, um, characters in the universe in defiance of all the strictures that had kept us out or kept us locked into one dimensional to the dimensional character, um, portrayals. Right, right. So they were working like, um, 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 against that. Uh, so later on when I had a chance to, okay, cross the streams as it were, like I, I went for it, but I didn't, that didn't come till much, much later. Like hmm. even when I was writing about v- video games professionally, um, you know, I didn't get a chance to do that. Like I didn't do that when I was writing for complex, I used to freelance for complex magazine and do video game reviews for them. Um, mm-hmm. um, and it was like video games are video games and all the hip hop shit lives in the front of the book or wherever. If it very rarely I had a chance to, um, do something that was hip hop inflected in a game review. But, uh, those those cases were few and far between, like like a Def Jam Vendetta. It would have to be a game that was premised on being like hip hop, and not because yeah. that's just what people did. Um, um, did you find in games that most of the times, well, what when 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 did you see black folks in games, if at all? Man, was it when man. it was hip hop focused, or at much at all, or what? No, 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 not at all. Like. I have an old friend of mine, Engai Kroll, who used to be at Newsweek magazine. And, you know, you run the circuit, the, the video game journalism circuit, and you see each other at the same demo events, each other mm-hmm. at E3 and whatnot. And we've become friends. Um, but he was, it was him and it was me and it was Will O'Neill on the West Coast. Um, and three, that's it. I'm probably doing somebody a disservice by not remembering them. I didn't know George Jones then, but he was around. I'm probably forgetting some other people. Um, but these are people I would see regularly. Um, um, yeah. And it was not a lot. And, you know, the, the trickle-down effect there is um, portrayals of black people in video games were not great. The, the, mm-hmm. the, the mere presence was, you know, almost non-existent. Um, and as a result, you know, um, representations of the fan culture, of 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 again just brass tacks foundational representations of hey we're here we engage with this stuff we'd like to see our stuff represented yeah. this stuff that yeah, stuff yeah. was so hard to come by and when you had to like rail against it or comment on it it was always so fraught like both Engai and I had um wait what's that word frock fraught 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 yeah gotcha. just like tense and filled with um what's the word i'm looking for uh angst not angst it was just like uh tenuous like it could go <laughs> either way like fragile um um i'm probably messing that up but uh that's what you're getting from i think right i get now. you but, but you know example was resident evil 5 when that game came out um you know and guy infamously kicked off a, a, a wave of commentary and controversy by by saying um 
he saw the trailer at E3 and he's like, clearly no way Black worked on this game. Um, um, because the imagery they put out there was reminiscent of so many bad stereotypes um, that have historically dogged Black people. And this was a game made by Japanese people. Mm-hmm. And he engaged with that. And I did. I interviewed the director and um, Tense's interview of my life. And I'm like, do you realize what you're doing here? And they said they didn't. And it, it they tried to like hand wave it. And I'm like, this, you know, for me as a black person playing this game is not going to make me feel good. I'm, I'm le- yeah. less inclined to like g- give you the benefit of the doubt. So stuff like that, you know, and for a long, long time, and there's echoes of this today uh, for a long, long time, that stuff was just hard to navigate. And, um, you know, the idea that there'd ever be any improvement was, um, not one you could put a lot of, uh, energy behind. Mm. Um, but Do you see things changing now. Things have changed a little bit. There's, you know, what used to be a toehold is maybe a whole foothold. You know, that's what I can say. <laughs> okay, they got a different. Okay, got you. You got the whole foot now. Yeah, on, a different on, lock. On, a different the, move they're working with on the on the on the on the sidewalk now, as opposed to just a a, a, a a toe. So, um, you know, I, I've written about this. I don't want to like go too far afield, but. You know, that was kind of like my... I mean, no, I mean, but this is all, to, to me, this is all part of the story. Yeah, this no, is all yeah. part of who you are, so I'm cool with it. That's kind of like, you know, my middle period, if we're being arbitrary about it. Um, you know, and uh, I freelanced for a long time. I freelanced for Time Magazine, had a um, nerd culture vertical called Sources Nerd World, and they turned it to Techland. Um, and I freelanced for them for like a year and a half. At the same time, I was freelancing for... Um, IFC, the independent film channel. They used to be the independent film channel. Now they're just IFC. Yeah, I didn't even know IFC meant independent yeah. film channel. Like, and they used you see to be the logo like, on my all head. about documentaries and um, uh, not the kind of programming. Now this is back when they were um, mostly a vehicle for independent film and documentaries, and not original programming like they are now. Um, but you know, somebody uh, who would manage their online stuff said, "Hey, we should start covering indie video games and video games in general." And I was a guy who did that. I did that for um, about a year and a half. Then um, things changed in terms of how I was getting paid at those places. Uh, they they decided to pay based on engagement and clicks versus the the contract rate that I was making at the time. Oh, so wait, <laughs> how much you got paid? Was based upon how well the website was designed. Uh, that was that was like a shift that happened at basically both places at the same time. That's but I mean because I I am a web designer. Yeah. So it would be it would be very rough if if your pay was a bad scene because was um, based off of how well I can design this website. I mean, part of it was design, but it was also like volume too. And as I put it to people, then. I would have had to, in order to make what I was making as a uh, contracted employee with a agreed upon rate every month, I would have had to have had every month be E3, uh, the biggest, Oof. biggest, buzziest month of the year for video games. I would love to go to E3, by the way. Um, yes and no. No, uh, I don't want to go to E3? Yeah, it's great. It's fun. You get to see the games. You get to like experience the kind of like full-scale, all-in-your-face marketing force of an entire industry. Uh-huh. Kind of like Comic-Con. Yeah, but when you got to run from one end of the arena to the other to make an appointment because you're double booked, triple booked, and you you got to mm. crank out stories every day, you know, it loses its allure, you know? Like, 
Um, you know, if you're seeing Mad- like visiting Disney World versus wearing the Mickey Mouse suit yeah, every exactly, day. Exactly. Gotcha. Yeah, that's very that's a good analogy. So um I forgot where I was there. But uh You were saying E three. Um Yeah. Anyway, but this is like the middle period of my f- career. Oh, I was talking about getting paid and and how that changed up for me. Um change up my career path. I was like, okay, well, uh, there's a level of sustainability here that um, I'm not going to be able to hold on to just because the models are changing around me. I had just become a dad at the time, and it was like, oh, okay, what's next? Um, Thankfully, um, there was an opening at Kotaku um, that a friend of mine um, didn't take because he took a job somewhere else, and um, that left the spot wide open for me. So I was able to slide in there. And um, very quickly underwent, I, I can't say boot camp because I knew the basics, but there was um, a level of speed and um, agility and um, snark that I had not been executing in my writing that uh, before uh-huh. that point. And I quickly learned how to do all those things. Uh, so it was know. like a level up. Yeah. Or you had to level up. Yeah. I had to level up. I had to level up early on. I was on probation at Kotaku. I was like, you're not doing this fast enough, uh, t- uh, focused enough. And, you know, I, I considered myself to be a good writer at that point, And other people did too. Um, but it was like, this is a whole new ball game. Cause it's, we gotta be first. We gotta be fast. We gotta be good. Um, yeah, and I'm like, well, I've been doing one of those things consistently. The good part, uh, first and fast, were things I had to learn. Um, was that um, a difficult transition for oh, you? Yeah, or did you catch was. on quick? It was, yeah, it was. Um, because uh, it was my first time being thrown into um, a website with a robust and rowdy commenting community. Um, and so, you know, you can read a comment that'll comment section. Yeah, you can read a comment that will spoil your day. Um, and you know, you still got to do your job. Um, and you know, uh, the highs and lows that come with, um, having execution on a particular piece of content, um, be well received or not well received, well trafficked or not well trafficked. Um, it's a thing that I still feel like a lot of people don't talk about who work in online media, but you know, when you put all your heart and soul into something and people like people like kind of collectively shrug at it, it's like, oh, yeah. Why am I doing this? So, you yeah, know, yeah. I learned to navigate all that stuff. Um, and I was a Kotaku for four and a half years from 2008, October 3rd, 2008. Um, no, what am I talking about? No, it's not 2008. Um, uh, 2011. Yeah, because this will be seven years. Yeah, 2011. Um mm-hmm. Until May of 2015, yeah. Um, okay. At, at which point I transitioned over to IO9 because what at Kotaku, the my last the latter part of my tenure there, most of my output was about comic books. Um, mm-hmm. Stephen Totillo, the editor in chief, my friend, he's big comic book head too. He's like it's part of video game culture. You know, there's a big intersection. Yeah, go for it. So, um, I, I covered comic books week in, week out, um, at Kotaku. Um, ironically, oftentimes, um, racing 
to uh, get a better angle or faster um, um, upload than the people at IO9 who will later become my colleagues. So there'll be times where like, oh, this new Batman issue's out. It's great. It's, some shit happens that I think is going to really pop and people are going to want to know about. Mm-hmm. You're writing it up and who gets there first, us or them. Um, and now that we're all working together, uh, my, my current boss, Rob Brick, is like, yeah, there's pieces that you wrote over there that I wish we had. Um, hmm. uh, but now we're one big happy family. Um, so yeah, it is interesting um, because that, that that's when the sites were still Gawker Media and competition, um, intramural competition was very he- heavily encouraged. So, you know, if like a movie trailer that, you know, to use a Hollywood lingo, a four quadrant movie trailer came out that everybody in the various verticals and their audiences were going to be interested in. Like, yeah, you write it up. down a four quadrant movie trailer for me because I don't so know what four, that means. Four quadrants in Hollywood. It's it's a it's a it's an older term. People doesn't get used that much anymore. But it's like where you get four slices of your audience. You get men, women. You get old and young, right? Um, ah, got you. So something that appeals to all of them, right? Um, it's it's very much the kind of thinking that leads to these middle of the road, big blockbuster, safe mm-hmm. things. Um, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and something like you know, something like I don't know, Star Wars. Every website was going to find a way to cover yeah, Star Wars. Of course, everybody goes to <laughs> Star Wars because they're like, "Hey, people want to see this trailer. Um, let's all write about it." And then it'd be like, it sit back and be like, "Okay, well, we had used to have a big chart, and still do." It's like, "Well, whose site? What site is getting the bigger numbers from it?" So that that, that was kind of the environment that um, the latter part of my journalism career um, was forged in, and you know, like. It, it it certainly uh, taught me to be less precious about my writing. Um, uh-huh. Get it out there. You got to write every day. And, you know, it's like ex- exercising a muscle. And um, you get a certain confidence and a certain sense of your range of your abilities, right? Here's what I can do. Here's what I can't do. Um, and here's what I can do well. Here's what I can help others do. So all that right. stuff I carried into me with IO9, um, with me into IO9. Um, and IO9 is currently where I'm at. Um, and you know, uh, it's probably fair to say if I weren't a comic book critic, I would not be a comic book writer, um, which is not, not something I was ever expecting in life. Oh, you're saying if you, okay, wait, do you mean if you weren't currently a comic book critic, you would not currently be a comic book writer or if in the past you hadn't done that? Yeah. No, if, if, if I was not somebody who's writing about Black Panther comic books as a critic, in that I wrote comic books about his publishing history, his fictional history, you know, stuff like that. If I didn't do that, I would not be writing Black Panther comic books now. Hmm. Can you make that connection for me? Sure. Me I mean, what you it's, mean pretty, it's pretty simple. Um, uh, when Tanahasi Coates was announced as a writer of the Black Panther, I guess it's two and a half years ago at this point. Um, was it? Is it? Is it been two and a half years? The Black Panther, or has that been since he was announced that he was going to do I, it? I think he was announced in um, twenty fifteen, but I could be wrong about that. Um, let's turn to Google once again. Let's see what Google has to say about the facts. About um, yeah, it was, announced in, it was announced in in September twenty second, twenty fifteen. Okay, All yeah. Right. And I don't think his run started until 2016. 
Um, okay, yeah, that makes more sense. Yeah, I think it was actually that February. Um, or maybe not even that February. Anyway, but yeah, so 2015. Uh, the backstory there is I knew Tanahasi from a mutual friend. Um, Chris Jackson, the editor in chief of One World Books, which is a um, imprint at Random House. Okay. Chris Jackson and I were friends. We're still our friends. Um, Tanahasi had a brief stint at Time Magazine, and Team People was also a Time Inc. magazine, so we were in the same building. Chris was like, hey, you guys should get to know each other. You both like comic books and shit. We never really did, but then Tanahasi's first book came out, uh, The Beautiful Struggle, and yeah. um, I went to like a few of his first readings and signings. Uh, we finally got to talk a little bit. Turns out we had a bunch of mutual friends in common. Um, so we'd hang out a little bit and, uh, we got to know each other, but you know, we didn't hang too tough. Um, and then, you know, his, his fortunes changed with, as his, uh, you know, star and prominence began to rise. Um, but when he got announced as a writer of Black Panther, mm-hmm. I was like, son, I like, I know. I'm like, son, he's like, I know. Um, <laughs> and, uh, we talked about it, um, a little bit. And because he's my friend, um, I never reviewed the book. Um, it was just, you know, kind of a conflict of interest thing. Um, but okay, I, did I was do... going to ask, you feel like you couldn't be, like, objective? Uh, you know, I feel like I probably could have been, but I didn't want that called into question. Um, I understand uh, that. Um, but I did do uh, a few, like, long, wide-ranging interviews with him. Um, about him getting into comics and um, his, you know, history as a nerd, probably the stuff you do, you talk to him about. Yeah. Um, so we did a few. He remembers his first comic too. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a thing, you know. I guess not everybody does, but when you do, it's like usually significant um, for reasons that are not just part of the comic as well. Um, yeah, like the experience or yeah, like what like led up to it or what's happening around like, it. Oh wait, yeah, I remember. I had to be there all freaking day. And Matt Murdock saved my life. Um, <laughs> right. Um, so uh, I did these interviews with Tanahasi, and um, his editor was like, yo, do you think Evan would be into writing some comics for us? This is Axel at the time? Uh, no, this was actually Will Moss, the editor of the Black Panther title, who's still there. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah. Um, I would meet Axel later on, um, um, and I knew, I actually met Axel... I think it was for the first time at San Diego last year. Um, and he's really, he's like, I can't wait to read what you're doing. Um, he's gone now, of course, unfortunately. Um, yeah. And I'd love to know what he thinks, but uh, I, I've not been in touch with him since. Um, anyway. Uh, yeah. And you know, this, the side note there is I've been writing about comics as a critic for a while. And every so often I hear people like, Hey, you think you want to write comics? I'm like, mm, I don't know. I like being a critic. You know, there's a, certain ter- stereotype around cultural critics that treat us like we're frustrated creators, right? Like, oh, you're a film Comical critic. creators? Uh, yeah, or j- just anybody, you know? Like, you're a film critic because you can't actually make movies. Oh, okay, I see. You're, I see. you're, you're, you're uh, you know, you're a video game critic because you never learned how to program. Um, like the whole the whole thing Denzel says, uh, those who do can, those who don't talk about those who do kind of thing? Yeah, and you know, like... It is is often a negative connotation. People casting aspersions on critics, which is not necessarily true. I don't, you know. Oh, I, it's absolutely I mean, you're, not you're true. evidence of that. You know, it's. I mean, eh, I don't know. I mean, thank you. I'll take the compliment. Um, but yeah, like 
you know, I feel like uh, good critique is an art unto itself, you know? You know, I uh, like that one. I like that, Evan. Hey, it's true. It's very true. And I have other critics I talk about this with, like, you know, like being able to parse and distill and communicate um, the history of a medium, of a character, of a creator, um, to share your love with something um, so effectively as to ignite that same love in somebody else or to, you know, shoot a warning flare about a particular work because you feel like it's um flawed or problematic in a certain way like that's a skill that's and that's important you know yeah like yeah. you know i've i greatly admire cultural culture critics it's it's hard work because people feel like ah, oh, you're not really adding anything but you know i mean once you're confident in in in, in your own purpose you can shrug that off but it's hard because you know I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine where a bunch of us went on a group vacation probably like eight, nine years ago. And uh, he was like, what, is, what do critics do? Like, what's the point of critics? Like, you know, I'm like, well, you know, you, you can look at it from a purely financial angle of being the guy who sees you 10 bucks from going to see a movie that's crap, you know? <laughs> or you can, either, right. you, you can look at it at a larger angle and be like, okay, here's why art matters. Because, you know, People are not always going to listen to your artist when they say that, you know, and, and artists hmm. don't have as big a megaphone as a critic. Um, at least it used to be that way. Hmm. Um, and, you know, you, you're more likely to pick up your newspaper with a review of a museum, museum exhibit than you are to go to a lecture by the artist at some event you may not be able to get into. Yeah, it's true. There are a lot of people who have their like cultural watering holes they go to. Yeah. To kind of go, all right, now, before I go ahead and do, like, or you, we've got those people we call, or I'm in New York, where should I go to, like, right. or That's, I'm going to yeah. the movies, where should I see? Yeah. We all have that yeah. person. You, you know who does that full-time, all the time? Critics, you know? Yeah. Your boy, you may want to get the report on the latest, you know, Liam Neeson movie. He may not be available to you one day, you know? He could be asleep. Yeah, yeah, true. He could be out of the country, you know? But you can always go on a website or, or a newspaper and be like, okay, this is what they thought. Anyway. Right. But yes, one of the things I'd heard over the years was, Evan, you're a good writer. You know about comic books. Um, would you ever want to engage in the form yourself? And I was like, no. You know, I knew the things about comic books that I knew were like, there's a lot of political tomfoolery. Um, that I didn't, <laughs> tomfoolery is great. That, it was great. I, I, I just didn't want to get involved with like egos and whatnot. Yeah. Um, also, you know, I know I knew that comic book work is contract work. You know, most of the creators that you see uh, don't have steady staff gigs that get paid by assignment. And you know, as sales wax and wane, um, your career can be in jeopardy. You know, you may yeah, not- man. We we see that happen a lot. There's a lot of books to get cut. You know, I mean, we talk about this on Adam and I talk about this on the show often. Kind of just the idea of like, well, how do I mean, I was enjoying this book. It yeah. got cut. Yeah. Like, how well, does I can give you a list from the last two years alone that is just like I can't believe this book is not still around. You know, like and I, and and we can't get a straight answer. People don't want diversity in their comic books, or you guys didn't buy it enough, right? Or people, blah blah blah. And it's it, well, we need to support that. I mean, I said on episode eighty-five, one of the things that I did is I intentionally went out and bought. The Rise of the Black Panther and Batman and the Signal because I want to support black art and I want to vote with my dollars and go, please keep this. 
you know? Yeah, well, I appreciate that. And, you know, outside of being interested, I'm right, not just buying right, it just because, right. you know what I mean? Like, I I'm mean, interested in these I'm characters. not going to get into a long critique about the the business of comic books and the ways in which it can be better. Um, a lot of that is not my place to say. Um, I do think there's room for improvement. And I also think there's a lot of transparency that we're not, um, uh, that that is yet to be implemented because, you know, we don't know what digital sales do because the publishers keep that those numbers close to their vest. And they, yeah. they still treat in-store sales, physical brick-and-mortar sales, as the primary indicator of whether a book is successful or not. So, you know, lots of different things, you know, um, factor into that stuff. And like I said, I'm not going to comment on them at all. Right, um, okay. That said, I knew that stuff as a critic and a journalist who covered um, comics. So I was like, I don't think I, I want to get on that roller coaster. Um, but coming from Tanahasi, it was like, look, you know, you should be doing this. And then he's like, it's not even me. It's my editor. I was like, all right, this is not you just trying to gas me up. Um, let me see what's up. So uh, I guess a year and change now in October of 2016, I was coming to New York Comic Con for work anyway, I and I, and I met with, sat down with Will Moss, the editor on the Black Panther title. We um, talked a little bit. He wanted to gauge my interest in creative writing, see, like, if I had any ideas. And, you know, we basically agreed to kind of continue the conversation online. And I um, sent him a pitch for a different angle on the Black Panther mythos, which uh, didn't wind up happening. Because he was like, no, I think we want you on, like, I think the first conversations around the idea were, like, T'Chaka. And like the history, like a T'Chaka book, yeah, or like just, I mean, focusing him. But they, it was from, it was they didn't want to be T'Challa centric, so it was never going to be just T'Challa, T'Challa, mm-hmm. T'Chaka. I mean, mm-hmm. it was going to be both characters. Um, but it's like you know, we we kind of see you on a Black Panther Year One project, and so I went back and was like, damn, uh, I think I can do this. The idea started coming and. Um, 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 eventually I worked on it for a long time and, um, we announced last October and the book's coming out now. Um, you know, one thing I always, it's, it's, it's a very, been a very surreal two weeks for me. The book's been out two weeks now. Um, two Wednesdays, I should say. Mm -hmm. And, uh, my friends (laughs) sent a text message, um, um, my friend Todd Barbie, who's a lawyer in Atlanta now, um, we went to college together. He's like, yo, I used to go to comic book signings with you. Now you're having one. I'm like, it's a trip, right? Um, yeah. Um, and, you know, like, it's a weird moment, especially if it's becoming now, as the Black Panther movie is a month away from releasing. Yeah, we all, we almost there. Right. And to be writing a comic book about T'Challa, who's always been my favorite comic book character, has um, he always, for real, he's always been like, like the number him and one? Batman run neck and neck, but there's always something about the Black Panther that struck me to my core. And I can, I can sum it to you in one sentence. I was just about to ask you, what is that? I've written about it in various essays, but the thing about T'Challa that I love is he's a character that stands at the crossroads between tradition and modernity. What's that last word? Modernity. modernity. What does that word mean? So, the, you know, the modern world, right? Got it. Gotcha. So, he's got this whole history. And this is even before, like, the layers of lore that were added by, like, 
uh, priest and Hudlin and Coates and, uh, and other, and Hickman and other characters. A lot of the stuff we know and love about the Panther is a uh, latter day edition. But even from the earliest days, like Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, Don McGregor, like, mm-hmm. there was always like, hey, I have this history that stretches back centuries. And I'm the guy just by virtue of the world changing, I have to break with tradition a little bit to make to to make sure that this history continues unbroken. So I have to break it in order to maintain it. Yeah. Um, um and that's the core tension at the heart of Rise of the Black Panther. Um um, it's not a spoiler to say that uh, the the stories of the book is about the story of T'Challa deciding that he has to reveal Wakanda to the world and all the things that um, happen as a consequence of that. Mm. Uh, um, um, it's funny because it occupies the same notional space as the movie. The movie's operating around the yeah. same idea. Yeah, I've I've gone out of my way. Like I, everybody who listens to the podcast knows I go out of my way to avoid spoilers. I go, I watch one. I this thing called the Blackout Congregation. Like you watch one trailer, <laughs> a trailer has a job to do, Evan, and the job of a trailer is to determine whether I want to see this movie or not. Right. Once the trailer has done its job, it no longer serves any purpose in my life but to spoil the movie more and more and more. Right. So I don't watch, I watch my one trailer, which I watched months ago. I avoid toys. I don't know what, they want to know what the toys look like. I don't want to know what. Yeah, I, have a, I have a or, friend who uh, ironically is a publicist. Um, I'm not in comics or anything, but he has the same ironclad, you know, kind of like blinders. He's like, nah, nope. Yeah. But I will say that I, I did get that vibe. From the little bit I saw, the kind yeah. of like, I have seen, I've never seen, I've seen gods come out of this. I've never seen anything. And I mean, I haven't seen the movie. I'm very excited to see the movie. And there's something that these, your, you know, Ta-Nehisi's book and your book have done to me as a comic book reader that I didn't know I needed. I didn't know I wanted was this whole conversation of, never been conquered, never been colonized. And your book added something else to that. The many have sought to conquer Wakanda, all have failed. No king has ever died at the hands of outsiders. Yeah. It's Stuff like that just makes me, makes me like almost well up with tears. And I, and I sit down, I think like, why am I, why is this make me react this way? You know, and I think about our history, you know, our heritage as, you know, black people in America, yeah. like, we don't we can't say those things like yeah. the the richest the most technologically advanced we did it by ourselves yeah. we're over here doing our thing we got the most money the most technology you know uh, uh, like like you you need like and and we're not even ad- announcing ourselves like here we are look at us it's right. kind of like right. leave us alone right. we're good yeah so you know a lot of that obviously is in play thematically in the in the book um um and will continue as in future issues um, but you know, like part of my like earliest thought processes around the book was thinking about T'Chaka as a focal point of Wakandan history. My thing is you have a country that's never been conquered, never been colonized, you know, an unbroken chain of kings and queens who had their own drama, no doubt, 
you know, to deal with. Yeah, they got their own mess. Um, internal and external, but nobody's ever died at some at the hands of people that we know of, of of outsiders, white outsiders. Um, yeah. To put a much finer point on it, my thing was, if we take that commonly understood notion of 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 Wakanda. What is what what does T'Chaka's death mean? It's like it's like the death of Martin Luther King Jr. I mean, we're talking mm. about we're talking about the holiday, but yeah, it's like okay, there's a before and there's an after. It's like the death of JFK, right? It's it's an it's a hmm. a scar on the national psyche, right? And my thing is in well, it had to affect T'Challa a certain way. It had to affect um his uncle Cyan a certain way. It had to affect all these people certain ways and we're going to see this in the series um and for t'challa he's like look you know my father died at the hands of outsiders you know 99.99 percent of the world may not know that we're here but the point zero zero one that does Mm. is gonna find the means and the will um to try and get what we have because they know and they're not going to stop knowing. Um, and we need to figure out a way to engage with the world. That's not just keeping ourselves hidden. Um, and that's, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm tooting my own horn, but I think that's a fresh angle on, 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 on the black Panther. It's, it's, yeah. it, it, and it's meaningful for me. Like it's, you know, like I've read this character um, through highs and lows um, through my 45 years on the planet and I've read back through a lot of the history and you know it's amazing that I still feel like we need to get into Chala's head a little bit hmm. um, we need to figure out um, who his parents were like issue one is out so I can talk about it now but I was like yeah. we've never seen T'Chaka in his prime you know like we've never seen True. him like Hey, he's young. He's a badass. You know what? What? What were the political, you know, tensions that he had to deal with? And who was his father? We saw his father in a miniseries that was written by Reggie Hutland, drawn by Dennis Cohen, uh, one of my favorite artists of all time. What up, Dennis? Um, and we saw uh, a version of that story that's been told uh, two or three times at this point, um, which is Azuri meeting Captain America, and that's an established part of Marvel lore. And my, like, and my thing was, okay, what consequences did that have? Did that meeting have that we never knew about, you know, internally within Wakanda? And so I showed, uh, got to show that a little bit um, in issue one. And in Yami... Yeah. Uh, and I saw you make a reference to, like, go to the comics we can go back yeah, to. Yeah, Because I have Marvel Unlimited, so right. I went back yeah, like, oh, to Captain that. America slash Black Panther, Flags of Our Fathers, great series, lots of fun. Um, um, but you know, the T'Challa's mother, you know, has been like a non entity in like 50 years of comics. Her names get gets mentioned on the page a couple of times every couple of years. I think she's actually been drawn in a panel once, twice, three times. And I'm like, T'Challa's mother, Ramonda? No, see, that's the common mistake, Octavius. Ramonda is not T'Challa's birth mother. Because Charles' birth mother is Inyami, the character I wrote about. The character in this book. Yes. Um, yeah. And it was... A, I was kind of confused by it, but I was like, all right, let me just um, let me listen well, to the story typical, that he's telling me. It's a typical comic book superhero 
parent um, paradigm where it's like, yeah, your job's to die, right? Yeah, your job is to die to provide uh, psychological motivation for your son or daughter to become a superhero. Same with thing with you know, how many years pass um, between the introduction of Thomas and Martha Wayne as characters who die on the page in Detective Comics number twenty-seven in nineteen thirty-nine? Mm-hmm. How many years pass between that that issue in nineteen thirty-nine and us actually learning? things about them as characters who had their own lives. I'd, I'd wager like 30 years, hmm. if not more. Like where we found out, oh, Thomas Wayne was a doctor who dressed up once um, 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 as, as a Bat character. That, actually, that was actually a story from the 50s. Um, but, you know, like, how did they meet? What were they like? You know, what were their interactions with Bruce as a kid? You know, in um, a way that is more kind of structurally postmodern where we're like, okay, it's not just a story on the page. There's a story behind the page that we're not seeing that's informing these characters. And that's yeah, yeah. a latter day understanding. Um and if we're talking about the long kind of stretch of Batman as a character. And for child the child is the same thing. So like, you know, I mean let's go back to Ramonda for a quick second. Uh Ramonda wasn't introduced as a character until the mid eighties. Hmm. Um so all that time, like, like metatextually speaking, T'Challa didn't have a mother, right? And my thing is, well, wait, he had two mothers. One of them we know something about because Ramonda is still alive in the comic books mm-hmm. and she's been around mm-hmm. and been the subject of, of scrutiny of a bunch of different writers. But we, we don't know anything about Inyami. And I was like, well, well let's, let's do some stuff with Inyami. You know, let's make her a real character. And one of the things I wanted to do was... Um, figure out what part of her legacy, what part of her lives on in T'Challa. I have a daughter. She's in first grade now. She's an avid reader. Hmm. And I know she gets that from me. Like, she likes to read. Like, sometimes I'll come pick her up from after school. She'll be over at a table by herself, reading, like, nose deep in a book. And it moves me. Like, that was me. Same thing in in the library. But you're just not, you're just not concerned. Right. I'm not concerned. Exactly. I'm not concerned. Um, and I know she gets that from me. So my thing was, okay, T'Challa's a scientist. He's been a, sci- a scientist ever since his first appearance. That's always been a, like a foundational aspect of his character. His dad was a warrior, a politician, a strategist, and he probably comes from a long line of forebears that had, that, that specialize in those same qualities. Um, where does... T'Challa get the science from? Where does he get his aptitude for science? Yeah. And my thing was like, well, his mom. The mom we never met. The mom we don't know. The mom who died in childbirth. And, you know, more than that, I want to have her be a crucial piece of what um, was a golden age of technological development for Wakanda. Like, Mm. the whole reason that, not the whole reason, but but T'Chaka says in, in the first issue is like, you know, I can only be my be- do my make my best decisions with you by my side, because he knows yet you're smarter than me. Yeah, like we 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 have this amazing resource that yeah we've been able to use it in cool and clever ways before, but like you 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 can change the game, and I need you. And if I want to change the game, if I want to strengthen Wakanda in these ways that uh, are gonna 
buttress it against the outside world um, for the future. Like, I need you by my side. So, you know, it was, it was, uh, that was the motivation for me making her, um, in fleshing out her character a little bit. You know, I only, I only had like half an issue to give her if that, yeah. um, but I'm, I'm proud of what I did with her. Like I, one of my biggest regrets about writing this series is not being able to spend more time with T'Chaka and Inyami. You know, it has to be T'Challa's stories for obvious reasons. Um, but man, I want to go back to those characters really bad. Yeah. This is great. This is this is this is dope. This is insightful. I'm and I and I appreciate where we're at now in light of all the stuff beforehand. Yeah, it's you know it's funny like it's and the thing about this this moment where you know because it's about to be like 1988, 89 all over again. When, when I, I say that year because that's when the Tim Burton Batman movie came out and the whole hmm. world was consumed by Batmania. And I feel like we're on the precipice of a similar moment with the Black Panther. With Black Panther. And that's why I feel incredibly lucky to be writing this book, this particular book about this particular character in this particular moment. Um, I think people are going to want to know more about him and I get, and I get to put some of those bricks in that, in this, some bricks on this giant structure that has been built building up for like 50 some odd years ever since Stanley and Jack Kirby started it all off. Um, yeah. You know, and people can be able to look at this and be like, Hey, you contributed something to that. And I'll be like, yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's, I think that's true because I know a lot of people who I've never seen my timeline on Twitter have so many people talking about got my tickets. I'm excited. People who never knew a thing about a vibranium or what is right. a Wakanda. Right. A T'Challa, T'Chaka, Shuri, Zuri. They don't yeah. know nothing about yeah. none of that. Yeah. Now nah, they're talking about like getting outfits together. Like, I mean, people are coming into book. Like, do you have you ever read Black Panther? Like, you know. So, yeah. I love the fact that, and I'm not even on some like. There is a level to where you know it's like, well, we'll dig in. Don't just yeah. stay at the surface yeah. level. Like, yeah. get in there. And you I, know, I, like, I feel really lucky to be writing a book where people this is going to be their first contact with the character. I have friends of mine who've never read comics before knew I was doing this project, went and picked it up. He's like, Oh my God, I want to know more. And I'm like, good. That's what I want. You know, like the, yeah. the, the first issue had to be really dense. Cause I was trying to cover a lot of ground. Um, but something that Tanahasi and I talk about, um, is that when we were reading comics, you just picked up a comic, right? And he mentions that. And when, when we, in his, his yeah. origin episode, he yeah. talks about his first comic. He just picked it up and he just, he had, he had to just figure, just guess and figure right. it out and just right. put it together. And that was my experience too. Growing up on Long Island, I'd ride my bike to a comic book shop, like a mile, mile and a half away. You know, maybe they had Moon Knight number three. Maybe they didn't, you know, maybe they had X-Men, you know, 191. Maybe they didn't. And, uh, did they have the issue before it or after it in back issue boxes? Maybe, you know, um, or maybe I, maybe they had, they consistently had a steady supply of those comics in the shop, but I couldn't get there every month. You know, I didn't always have money. So you just, you, you, you lent it to a friend and they wouldn't get it back. So all these kind of like, you know, instances where, uh, you were faced with gaps in your knowledge and you had to kind of, uh, forge ahead in order to make the stuff make sense to you. And then you'd have the luxury to, to back read and make it make sense. But like, there has to be something in each comic to make 
people want to know more. We live in an era now where um, there's a lot of decompressed, stretched out stories. Um, and that is just not necessarily a bad thing. But, you know, uh, right now, comics are designed to be told serially in multiple chapters that are sold right. individually and then collected um, for a secondary market, the bookstore market yeah. and what have you. Um, and that's changed the way that storytelling happens in comics. Um, and, uh, but before when he and I were reading, like the vast majority of comics were done in one, right? They told a full story with subplots that would thread to future issues. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, uh, you're supposed to deliver a dose each issue, right? There was the old saying was, uh, every comic could be somebody's first comic. So every comic, somebody's first. And that's why, you, and that affected the storytelling then too. So you just see like Peter Parker's <laughs> origin recapped every issue, right? The spider bite. This could be somebody's long, first time learning about a spider bite. So we got to say it again. We got to talk about you know Wolverine's claws is mantium, and he has a bond to his bones too. It's like the stuff that you would roll your eyes out after you uh, roll your eyes at after you'd been reading it for two, three years is the first time for somebody else, and that's. You know, I'm kind of approaching it in Rise of the Black Panther in a similar fashion. Obviously, I can't go all the way old school, but like, I'm trying to tell a complete story in each issue um, um, that connects to each other thematically and subplots. But I'm trying to tell some. Okay, you know what? If you only buy issue three of this, you're gonna get a really good story. Got you. I feel you. Hopefully, that tells you something about this character's journey and being a new king of this country and him interacting with forces internally and externally. So I'm, I'm trying to do that. Whether I succeed is going to be up for other people to decide, but that's very in, part of the intent. How long is this book going? If you have your way? Oh, it's six issues. It's mini series. So, okay. Um, there's an endpoint in sight that I'm heading towards, um, which is very freeing because the pressure of an ongoing right now is something I don't know if I could do. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a day job. I'm keeping my day job. Um, right. So, uh, um, and my day job's in comics. So, um, uh, having two ongoing, um, careers in comics on either side of the, the critic, critic, crit, critic, creator fence would be weird. Um, but yeah, so six issues, um, but that'll see us through the summer, you know? Um, um, if I can get really pie in the sky, um, It'd be great if the last issue drops when the DVD is out, but who knows when the DVD is going to be out? Probably not for, not till the fall, I imagine. Um, it's usually like what, like I mean, because uh, Swore Thor just came out, and they're already talking yeah, about yeah. Well, Thor, what Thor came out in October? Uh, did it? I don't know, but I know it. I feel like it just came yeah, out. and the DVD's out like next month, right? If not this month, something like that. Yeah. Anyway. So again, Maybe. this is my dream. I'd love to be there for the. I'd love to have a comic on the stands for a movie premiere and a comic on the stands for the DVD release. So we'll see. Well, you got the movie premiere. Is there anything else that you want to write? Any other creator own even stuff? Yeah, I have a creator own idea that I'm not ready to start talking about because I mostly because I need to workshop it some more. Totally but, respect that. Don't want to put uh, that out on the. I have one. I have one there that probably won't happen for years if it happens at all. Um, I mean, I you know I'm not I'm. I'm not averse to any other work for hire scenarios like this, this current project. Um, you know, I, 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 you know, if, if DC or 
Boom or IDW or Dark Horse or Image. Well, Image yeah. is creator owned, but yeah. If anybody came calling with something that I felt like I could get motivated about, I'd, I'd take it on. I mean, the thing about this series is I've been joking with my friends. It's like, you know, this is the thing I was I was built to do. Like I was I was made to write this particular hmm. series. My favorite wow. character. It enables me to like execute various skills I've kind of figured out as a critic, looking at the history of the character, knowing the history of the character, I'm able to use it in a certain way, you know, and I feel like to the extent that this is successful at all is because of that. Um, If there, is there another project that, that, I could be ideally suited for like this. I don't know, maybe. Um, hmm. But yeah, that's that's kind of where I'm at. <laughs> I mean, to be real, I just want to finish this. I mean, I'm still writing Get this right. series. Um, I want to stick the landing um, and have it be a complete document that people can engage with and go yeah. from there. You know, like and, and be like and be like, okay, here's proof I can do this. Right. Maybe factor it into a future. MCU movie or just be I mean it's a it's officially a part of canon. You yeah, know? that is a thing of all time for all time. I, I think there's so contribute. much of this that I have to stop myself from actively thinking about because it'd be like you just be like sitting in a room like with your mind blown. But yeah, like I I I got to put words in Captain America's mouth. You know, like Yeah. Yeah. I I I you know, I got to put the word I got to put words in T'Challa's mouth, you know? Like I'm getting to do that. And these are things that are going to change people's understandings of the character, hopefully for the better, enrich them, make them deeper, um, and not uh, more shallow. Um, but yeah, uh, that's that's a trip. That's dope. All right, I got a couple more questions. You talk a lot about Black Panther. You seem to have a, a large knowledge of him, and you seem to be well-read on Black Panther. For someone who isn't as knowledgeable and as well-read, do you have a Black Panther run that you'd suggest? Yeah, so for me, like, the modern renaissance of this character um, starts with Christopher Priest run in 1998, the Black Panther series that came out um, initially as uh, part of Marvel Knights imprint, which was their Mm -hmm. imprint run by Joe Quesada and Jimmy Palmiotti. And it was basically like, okay, here's a set of characters. You find the right people to put on these books. And we'll give you guys editorial freedom. That was different than the mainline Marvel Comics um, offering that was being edited by Bob Harris, if I remember correctly, at the time. It was Bob Harris or Tom DeFalco. Um, but but yeah, Jimmy and Joe were the young bucks um, who you know thought they were hot shit and wanted to shake things up, and they they got a little bit of real estate in which to do that and mm-hmm. and then that sensibility wound up becoming uh taking over the whole marvel universe at large um at the time so yeah uh the christopher priest run from 1998 um is contains some of my favorite comic books ever um and it's a good place to start i mean Quick and stuff. that is on Amazon. I've seen that. Yeah, it's on Amazon. It's on Comixology. It's been in collected. Those collections. Is it on Marvel Unlimited? Yeah, it is. It is. Um, um, the entirety of the run is there, and it's great. If I can do a quick sidebar, um, one of the things that's also humbling about this series is um, 
I get to walk in the footsteps of my forebears, you know, people who I admired, like mm-hmm. Dwayne McDuffie wrote the Black Panther. Um, um, he's one of my favorite writers. Christopher Priest wrote the Black Panther, one of my favorite writers, you know, um, and not just that, uh, these are black creators in mainstream comics, which has yeah, always been big. a tightrope to walk. Um, and, mm. and you've had to struggle with visibility and credit and ceilings made of glass, of adamantium, um, that you get. <laughs> you say of adamantium? Yeah. Uh, that you can't break, break past. So the fact yeah. that I'm able to like engage with their legacies, um, is super meaningful for me. And, you know, if we can get even that's huge. deeper with it, like that's what T'Challa is doing with his own history. He's like, Hey, I have to hmm. carry on this legacy that my dad embodied in a certain way. And my hmm. grandfather embodied a certain way. Like, and I've, and, 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 and people are going to react to me. Um, simply based off how I do that. So, yeah. Yeah. To, answer, to continue answering your question. So Christopher Priest is great. Um, it's a great, great run. Um, I also want to give some love to Jonathan Hickman, who's uh, a Marvel writer um, in the mid-2000s. Um, he wrote some fa- uh, Fantastic Four run, Avengers run. Um, and he added a lot to um, T'Challa's lore that we kind of take for granted now. And... Um, uh, the main document was a new a series called New Avengers that I think started in 2012, mm-hmm. and that was kind of one of the um, building blocks that led to secret, the Secret Wars event in 2015. And and Hickman basically wrote uh, the New Avengers book that was kind of low key a T'Challa spotlight. Um, mm-hmm. It was uh, the the constant. Do you was, know the numbers on that? Uh, New Avengers. Yeah, like, do you know what numbers of New Avengers or is it the whole run? It was the whole run. It was the whole run. So the concept okay. of the book was um, the Illuminati, which was the best and brightest. Oh, the, the Illuminati joint. I know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that was low key a, a Black Panther book because they met in Wakanda. T'Challa was a main character. Um, the tensions between T'Challa and Namor were like a big part of that book. Um, and it was again T'Challa facing his own history. Like, what, what do you, what are you prepared to do to make sure that Wakanda survives? Um, and that was a core idea in that book. Um, yeah. And, and, and I think Hickman, um, really added to the depth of the character and the mythos, um, um, before that series, during that series, um, and even after that series, um, in the Secret Wars event that followed, when they had their big face off with Dr. Doom, when he was omnipotent, when he was God, basically. Yeah. Um, T'Challa put on that infinity gauntlet and it was like, what's up? Um, it was good now. Yeah. Uh, so that was like, okay, here's this character, you know, um, doing big things, you know, A-list things, you know, um, 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 in, in ways that are not predicated on, you know, him being a character, that it was created to uh, diversify the stable. It's not about him being black. That moment's not about him being black. It's about him being badass. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a part in T'Challa's publishing history where you would only see him show up. Be like, okay, you, you need to tell a story about black something or other. And here I am. Let's go. Uh, I got you. And you know, those are the stories 
if you if you you know read other creators older creators old and they're like yeah we hated that stuff or you know it was like he got locked into a mode um where he didn't have much depth like who is this person aside from being a symbol that you can insert in a story anyway octavius i'm serious we've been at this almost two hours i you can see i can go on i see that I see that. This is good. This has been great, man. I I am thoroughly. I don't know how much editing you do with these joints, but oh no, this is this is they gonna get this. They gonna get all this. <laughs> but the you know it's it's great stuff, man. Evan, I really appreciate it. Last question I want to ask, and you've touched on this in in some way, shape, or form throughout this entire conversation, like some of the things that you um, are leaving in your you know in your footsteps, like taking you know carrying on what the people before you have done. My question is, what do you want the lasting effect on your circle of influence to be as people look back on the work you've done, the whole entire story that you've told us and what is to come in the future for Evan Narciss? What do you want your lasting effect to be on, you know, the circle of influence that you have? My work as a critic, a critic as a fledgling creator, um, have all kind of worked towards, one, I think, simple yet con- continually frustrated goal. I want people at large to be able to access the fullest possible idea of Black humanity through the var- various creative mediums, cultural mediums that we get to engage with. So if you're watching a movie, you know. I, I I don't want it to be like, okay, we get one or two movies a year that kind of sort of sketches out the three-dimensionality of black people. Yeah. You know, like, I don't want it to be just like, okay, well, we had Hidden Figures last year and Moonlight last year. And we good. <laughs> right. You know, and I know there's other movies, you know, Girls Trip came out in 2017. Girls Trip was hilarious. Right. You know, but like, that's still, when you look at the num when you run the numbers... That's like half of a percentage point, you know? Yes, yes. Um, And, you know, my work as a critic has been to champion, critique, um, interrogate um, the people that want this work, that create this work, what it means to not have this work exist, um, what it means to have it exist in a flawed fashion, um... And now that I'm writing a comic book character that's supposed to be part of a major motion picture, I'm like, hey, guess what? Uh, this character came from a place of, of black love, at least in the fiction, mm. right? And then externally yeah. in the real world, too, um, you talk about an artist like Billy Graham who wrote, who drew a bunch of seminal uh, Black Panther stories written by Don McGregor in the 1970s. Like, that's a man who's like, look, I want us to be on the page in a robust, meaningful way. And that's what I want. You know, I want us to be on the screen, on the stage, on the page, mm. yeah. you know, on the radio, like it, with, with everything, not just like, you know, unassailable icons of, of, of altruism, which is what they've turned Dr. Martin Luther King into. Um, um, but you know, warts and all, warts and all, um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, that's what I want my lasting impact to be. Like, look, 
we are full human beings um, up and down the spectrum of human possibility. Um, like the, the days should be long past where we get uh, boiled down to stereotypes. Um, and and I want creative work. I want to make it. I want to talk about creative work that 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 gets at that goal. That's good, man. That's good. And I appreciate you coming on this podcast because one of the things that I was really wanting to happen in 2018 is I was just saying that we need more. Um, and I, I, I tweeted this because as the year was coming to an end and we were moving forward, this is really what I was feeling. I was think, I said, in 2018, we need more black faces, voices, perspectives, and content creators in geek culture media. Yeah. And you know, I, and you know it's going to sound and you being on this, on the podcast and us having this conversation hopefully is a step in the direction towards that. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I've been around not to sound like an old man or whatever, but like I've been here. I've been here. I've been mm-hmm. doing the work. Um, it's had up and ups and downs, and you know, um, people tell me that they appreciate me being around, which is nice. But like, I, I also don't want to be just me, you know. Like, yeah, you know, I, I stopped reading, writing my video games day in day out in in 2016, and I'm like, well, there are other people out there, and that's great. Um, but I want people to have as high a profile as possible, you know. Yeah. Like people should still not be talking about me when I haven't been doing this for like a year and change. You know, people should be talking about mm. the other people who've come after me who are great. People like Yusef Cole. Right. People like Tony DePass. People like Gita Jackson. Like these are all people who are younger than me who are doing the work. You know, like I want them to, uh, to, 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 um, raise up to the highest possible levels that they can and th- that they want to. Uh, you know, like not everybody wants to be the voice of a people. And I chafed under that. They might too, but like, there's enough of us out there that there should not be like a going concern for like 10, 15, 20 years out at this point, you know? Yeah. This is good, man. I really, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk with me and tell me your story. This, this has been really dope, really insightful for me. And hopefully, those of you listening at home, it's going to be good for you guys as well. I mean, Evan, why don't you let the internet know where they can find you on the internet? Do um, give you some feedback on the show or check out more of your work or sure. whatever. My Talk Twitter is um, Evnark at E-V-N-A-R-S-D. Um, you can find my writing multiple times a week um, on io9.gizmodo.com. Uh, and you can find me in your comic book store. Writing Rise <laughs> right. of the Black Panther number one. Number two is out on February 7th, a uh, week yeah. before the movie comes out. Yeah. Uh, and those are the places you can find me. There you go. You can find me on the internet, Twitter, Instagram, all the same thing, at Octavius A. Newman, O-C-T-A-V-I-U-S-A-N-E-W-M-A-N. If you like this show, please leave us five stars and a positive comment. If you're listening on YouTube, leave your comments. Let us know what you think. Um Feel free to tweet at me, tweet at Comic Book Junto, tweet at Evan. Let us know what your thoughts. Ask us some questions using hashtag AskCBJ. If you want to email some questions or email some feedback, comicbookjunto at barefruit.com. That's B3ARFRUIT.com. And I hope you guys have enjoyed this as much as, as, as I have. So I, I'm really looking forward to hearing you guys talk back to us over Twitter and everywhere else, letting us know what you think about the conversation and adding in your uh, two or 25 cents. So that's what we, that's what we got, Evan. That's it. All right, man. Octavius, thanks for having me on. I apologize if I 
croned on for too long. Hey, this is this is what this is what we do. This is what it is. This is what this is what inspires me. So I just want to share with other people the stuff that inspires me. These are the conversations that help me grow and help me go, oh, okay. I never looked at it that way. Or, oh, all right. I, I get to learn from Evan Narcissus' story. So that as I and, and get inspired and get motivated by it, you know? And like like we talked about before we hit record, you accepting, you know, the request to come on the show is huge to me. I really appreciate it very much. Awesome. Well, you know, I, I hope it does some of those things for you. And I again appreciate you taking the time out and having the interest to have me on. Absolutely. So, internet, that's it for this episode of Comfortable Gentle Origins. We love y'all. Until next time, peace. Peace. <laughs>